Um, you know, those moments in life where you experience or see something that is obviously the future, like you, you, maybe it's like the first time you saw a Tesla, you're like, oh, wow, this is obviously gonna be a thing. Um, or like the first time you saw an iPhone app or whatever, Angry Birds. Uh, so I had that yesterday. I have touched and experienced the future of medicine of healthcare. Tell me more. What, what do you it think? It was sick, dude. So I went to a doctor called Fountain Life. I found out about Fountain Life because Tony Robbins was pimping them out on Instagram. And I clicked on the link, of course. And so basically they're a longevity doctor. They're like Peter Atia, except obviously you and me cannot go to get Peter Atia. Fountain Life, they're like that. They're like Medicine 3.0. It's all preventative. And they give you this full day-long package where they scan like every freaking cell in your entire body, everything, bones, mm. uh, heart, the blood flow through heart, brain, MRIs for, for like half a day. And they do all of that just to get you started as a patient. And so here's the one little detail that like truly blew my mind is let's say, for example, you have high blood pressure, which is obviously super common and they prescribe drugs for that, like statins or whatever. I don't know what statins are, but I think that's what they give you. F Fountain life, they map your entire genome so that if they ever need to prescribe you say like a statin for blood pressure, they choose the correct medications based on your actual genes. Hmm. And I'm like, that is what personalized medicine is. It's like, yes. oh, Sam has a lung problem. Let's look at the freaking genes of his lungs to determine the right mm. course. And so the, the last thing I'll say is not only is that all amazing and obviously the future, but the whole experience was wrapped up like a luxury hotel spa. I had like eight servants the whole day amazing food. I had this huge room to myself. They called it a suite, flat screen TV. Um, they took me everywhere. Everybody was knowledgeable and friendly and I felt like royalty. Um, hmm. So that was the other thing why I realized this is obviously the future. So many things start like only accessible for rich people. So this hmm. thing that I did costs like almost $13,000, right? So this yeah. is rare air to do this. But things like that, they start with rich people and eventually somebody figures out how to make this accessible to the masses. And that's like how Ozempic happens, you know, goes from celebrities to, to randoms. So I mean, mapping, dude, mapping the human genome, I heard the other day has like dropped in price by 10,000% or something crazy. over the last yeah. decade. Well, this yeah, sounds absolutely. like an advertisement for Fountain Life. So uh, if anyone goes to Fountain Life, tell them that Sam Matlow sent you. And he's expecting the commission. Yeah. And I want to thank my good friend, Tony Robbins. You know, Tony and I were just texting before we, <laughs> before the pod. Uh, you know, I told him how great the experience was. Yeah. But I have to wait a month and then I get the results. So I'll let you know. Got it. Uh, yeah. Have you heard of a guy called Jacob Rabineau? You have, because I told you about him this week. But you wouldn't have otherwise, right? Absolutely not. No, nothing. I got okay, nothing. Okay, so... So Jacob, I don't even know how I came across this guy. Actually, I was, I was reading a book on creativity and he was mentioned. He was actually interviewed in the book. 
I'm like, who is this guy? Jacob Rabino uh, was born in Ukraine, moved to China when he was like 10, then to the States, escaped the uh, communist revolution in the oh. Soviet Union. And he went to engineering school and then he ended up working for like the Department of Defense during World War II. He was a great engineer in, in America. Inventor in the US. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And, yeah. and so he came up with like, well, he worked on a bunch of um, weapons, specifically like ordnance, like uh, cannons and stuff like that. Um, Damn. Anyway, you can't find much on this guy. There's like a Wikipedia mm-hmm. page with not much on it. There's like one video on YouTube. Uh, and there's like this old archive.org website uh, from mm-hmm. the company he used to work for. So I went through all of it, basically. Um, and he's got some cool stuff. So the first thing is when he was working for the department of defense, uh, he was like doing stuff illegally, like working on things that were like, like going, going to like the side of the right process and he'd work on something and he kind of be given permission to do it. And then he'd go to like his superiors and say, Hey, like I invented this thing. And they'd be like, uh, you shouldn't have done that. And then he's like, yeah, but like, it kind of works, yeah. right? Like, do you want me to yeah. just like, not give it to you? Like the invention? He's like, and they're like, no, 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 no. Like, we'll take it. Like, it's, it's cool. Um, but my takeaway from desk. that. Yeah, yeah. My takeaway from that is like, if you're excellent at something, you are permitted to break the rules because you're so, de- you're indispensable, right? Um, he says, let me put up my nose. He's got some, oh, he's got some great stuff. Um, he talks about the fact that, you know, many good ideas, by the way, the most important part I missed out is this guy has 229 US patents. Most of them would be expired by now, but over his lifetime, he had 229 patents or inventions, um, many of which came like after the age of 40, 50, 60. Oh, and nice. he actually mapped think- this out. Yeah. What mapped out what? Well, like he, he said at one point, he's like, um, we find, I, I can't find the exact part, but people used to think that creativity declines with age. And he was like, I don't know oh, if I okay. believe this. So he looked at his lifetime and the patents he got. <laughs> and it's like, it's pretty constant over time. Even when he was 80, he was still getting, going to the patent office. And, and now you know, would we, things. would like, would you and I understand any of his patents or were they all like insane scientific engineering shit? He, no, he, um, he had a few things. So one thing he, he invented like the automatic regulation of clocks and watches, uh, which mm. is harder to explain than it sounds, but like in those old, old cars, you had like the clocks, um, and you had, used to have to wind them up or something. And he invented a way to like make that way better. Uh, he invented, he did a lot with the post, the post office in the state. So he invented like the automatic letter sorting machine. God, I love um, shit like that. Cool. I love so stuff like cool, that. Man. And I just, feel, I just feel like we don't have that anymore today. Like, you know, those kinds no. of cool, like one time before we talked about how Ben Franklin, like basically invented the the postal service. And then yeah. you got these inventors who make the machines to sort the mail and just all this cool stuff. Like we, we just don't have it anymore. All we have is computers. I know. Like I know. What, what is that other stat? Is that like, um, 
over 50% of the cost of a car is the computer like systems yeah. or something like that. Yeah. I'm like, oh man, that's. I think there's a reason for that, by the way, which he, he talks about in his book, which I doubt anyone's read. Um, he also invented the straight line phonograph. I don't know if you know what that is. I know what it's a like phonograph a is, but I don't know thing. if it's true. Yeah. Yeah. What's the straight line it's part? Some, dude. It's like a not bent arm or something like that. I, I don't understand yeah. it. I didn't look enough into it. But I want to share, I want to share like a few things. Um, so he has this book called Inventing for Fun and Profit. J- I just this guy Rabinow has this book. Yeah, yeah, he wrote it. You have to. The only way oh, you can read sick. it is on like, you can get it on paperback, I think. But I wanted to read it straight away, so it's on archive.org. You have to like borrow it for an hour, and then it expires, and you borrow again, and like. That's <laughs> is how that? You, do you know? Is that like the only book that he ever wrote? Like consumer yep. facing book. That is yep. also such a freaking baller move. And that other, that yeah. Felix Dennis guy the, who wrote the book, like whatever it is, like how to get rich or something is so good. I love it when people have this long, interesting life and they yes. write one book that just makes yeah. me so much more interested in that particular book. 100%. Um, anyway, in this book, he said a couple of things that like really stood out to me. A lot of it is about his invention. Some of it's a bit technical. Um, but like it's, there's a lot of takeaways. The first is he talks about like the chance of being original. He says it's very small. People are so carried away with their own brilliance that it is hard for them to believe that the world is full of equally brilliant people. And Hmm. one gains a tremendous amount of respect for the human race. When one sits in the patent office search room for a day and looks through the tremendous variety of ideas on any subject that one can possibly conceive. Mm. so like basically there there are more inventions and patents out there than we can even fathom like there's so many smart people in the world um i wonder what his takeaway from that is like so given that that's true you should keep pushing or you should not worry about being original and just do something else i wonder what was the well he says he says elsewhere in the book he's like he he came up with some inventions that he thought for sure would have been done already because they seem so obvious to him and then he'd go to the patent office and he'd be like, uh, you guys would have something on this, right? And they're like, mm, nope. And he's like, what? How can you not? Um, so I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. The He talks about luck. Like, I won't go into it too much, but he's the kind of person who would say, I am extremely lucky that I was like born in Ukraine and then went to Hong Kong or China and then went to the US and like, doesn't discount that the role of that which i like because a lot of people do who are successful yeah i wonder um if immigrants like the really tough immigrants who had a really hard story and made a big success i wonder if they on the whole more or less view themselves as as like lucky as like luck having a huge huge part of it i would think yeah that would make sense i would think more they would be, he's like, look, I'm lucky I didn't die in Ukraine or whatever when half my mm-hmm. town got blown up. Exactly. I've got two more things. Uh, you're yeah. going to love this one. So this is not from his book specifically, but I found it in, in the other book. So you know when you're doing creative work, uh, what happens is like you come up with this idea, maybe it's been incubating for a while in your head and then you have that like eureka moment. You're like, this is what yeah. I need to work on. And you feel good, you feel excited, and then you get into the work. And at some point during the work, you're like, ah, this is hard. 
and it, it becomes like just about pushing through and enduring at some point in a lot of cases. So he has this mental framework uh, that he uses for like enduring through this type of work. He says, there's a trick I pull for this. When I have a job to do like that, like a difficult job where I have to do something that takes a lot of effort slowly, I pretend yeah. I'm in jail. And if I'm in jail, time is of no consequence. In other words, if it takes a week to cut this, it'll take a week. What else have I got to do? I'm going to be here for 20 years. See, this is kind of a mental trick because otherwise you say, my God, it's not working. And then you make mistakes. But the other way you say time is of absolutely no consequence. Uh, and you just do the thing. And so if it takes two days, it takes two days. It doesn't bother me at all. Oh, yeah. I've never thought about like fully detaching the element of time from some particular project. Like I oh, mm. I think we're programmed to be like, this project I need to finish by Friday, or this is a one month yeah. thing that I'm going to work on, or this should take 50 hours or whatever. So yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. That reminded me of, and that's a good uh, like frame breaker idea. And one of the other ones that's been the biggest unlock to me. I forget who said this. It's been said a thousand times, but there's some writer who said, I only write when I feel inspired. It just so happens that mm. I feel inspired every day at 9 a.m. Yeah. And it comes from that same thing. It's a little bit maybe like a jail mentality. I think of it as like a handcuff mentality, which is I don't give a shit how I'm feeling or what's happening or what my deadline is. From 9 to 10 a.m., I am handcuffing myself to this desk and I'm looking at a blank page, yes. period. Yep. Maybe something will happen. 100%. Maybe it won't. I love that. I love that. 100%. And what's the, what's the 606 approach? On I see this, this note. Okay, so the 606 approach, at some point in the book, he's talking about like strategies for being creative and inventing things. And he does say, mm -hmm. he, he's like, uh, I don't believe in people who say that knowledge isn't important, which we'll get to soon. Hmm. Like he, he basically says that uh, you need some level of training to be able to invent stuff, right? You need some sort of engineering yeah. background. It's important to have an education. But he says, in the process of invention, uh, ideally, you're inventing something where you can like theorize and come up with something and you come to the solution um, through minimal experimentation and so on and so forth. But other times you need to take the 606 approach. What is the 606 approach? Well, there's a drug that was used to treat syphilis before antibiotics developed by this guy, Paul Ehrlich. Um, and what he did is he tested all sorts of drugs to treat this. And then mm -hmm. like, he was just brute forcing it, like throwing things at the wall. Yeah. Uh, and then when he got to the 606 drug that he tried, it worked. And the 606 approach is like literally just that. Like Throw you don't know the what the answer is. You don't know what to do. Just keep pushing. And I found that awesome from to hear and to, or to read from someone who's like so prolific they're like oh sometimes mm -hmm. like even these geniuses they just brute force it they're like i have no idea what's going to work here let's just like chuck this material at the mm -hmm. board let's just like try this piece of metal um and eventually it works and they spend a lot of money in the process but yeah yeah i've heard stuff like that called the spray and pray practice like just spray yeah, it and six pray, six it. pray. Sounds, sounds better it does. And whenever I've heard somebody talk about spray and pray, they're talking about it as a bad thing. Like, oh, in marketing, you mm. should never spray and pray. Um, yeah. What you just said reminds me, and this is a contrast, well, not to 606, but to the thing about 
knowledge and credentials or like experience being like actually really valuable. Um, I was listening to the founders podcast episode on Bugatti. I can't remember his first name. It's like Enzo Bugatti, whatever, you know, the guy who invented the car. Have you listened to that? No, not yet. I plan to. Okay. Bugatti, Bugatti. It's really, really interesting. So Bugatti was like a Leonardo da Vinci type of guy, but much, much more recent. Everybody who ever met him, like at his, you know, factory where he lived, he had this big compound thing. Everybody who met him was like, oh, it's like he's literally from the Renaissance. He is a person from the Renaissance who is here building cars. But um, he had a 100% artistic, idea-driven approach to engineering. Him, no one, his hundreds and hundreds of employees, none of them were like, knowledge-based and there was this great anecdote where um one of the engineers had some idea and was like oh but i need these cylinders i need to try this that and the other and every single thing he said he needed bugatti was like go make it go make it and the guy was like well i need to understand this um hydraulic thing and bugatti was like there's a lake right there on the property go down to the lake and figure out the hydraulic thing yeah and that's how he was his entire life i just like god it's so bad i love that yeah yeah but speaking of knowledge, like there is a downside to it. Yeah, there just is. Having, cause, cause you have those people who, who just don't, they have all this knowledge. They don't do anything with it. Yeah. Are you teeing me up for the next bit? 100% I'm teeing you up, man. Go for it. <laughs> I will, but there's some good stuff we got to circle back to, man. Um, on, on the Jacob Rabino stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's do it. Well, first off, I don't know what this I don't know what this logarithmic increase thing is, but do you see my little I was, point I about was sharks? Um Yeah, I mean, real quick, because this is a fascinating idea, which I think could yeah. be expanded on maybe at another point. He yeah. references a paper by this guy, I can't remember what it's called, but this guy looks at scientists who he's like studying the productivity of scientists. And what he says is like if you look at athletes, for example, um, there's not that much there's not that much of a range between like an elite 5k runner and like a great 5k runner. Like maybe it's a matter of yeah, like seconds, minutes, second. you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Same yeah. goes with height. Like some people, yeah. yeah, they're seven foot, but like most people fit in this sort of range. But when it comes to creative work and scientists who work on papers, like the difference can be 50x, 100x. Like some people mm. are just that much more prolific. And he's like, why is that? And- the guy works on the paper. He basically says it's like, it's to do with the fact that some people can hold multiple ideas in their head at once. And so they come across the insights more than others do. So for example, let's say John can only hold like two ideas in his head. So he has like a power of two, an idea holding power of two. And it's like, he'll Mm -hmm. only ever come across the insights that can be gained from those two ideas combined. Whereas other people, for whatever reason, uh, can hold on to like four, five, six ideas. Um, and so they can not only come up with, well, you, you get this like logarithmic increase of potential ideas and insights that you can come across through the combination. But the crazy thing for me, it's like a small little bit in the paper. He's like, if you look at the process of like working on a scientific paper, there's probably eight steps involved. Like you got to, come up with the idea you gotta like research like work on the paper right. you gotta write Experiment it well you gotta present it well yeah and he's like each one of those points 
if you can get a 50% increase in your productivity or ability to do it, that compounds in such an insane way that you get, you know, a 25 times increase. And I was like, wow, that's true. Like if it goes for any creative work, YouTube video, article, business, it's like there's all these little processes. And if you happen mm -hmm. to just be more efficient at like multiple of them, it's not just that you're 50% more effective or productive than the other person. You're like 10 times more productive than the other person. So that it was sort is, of a frame breaker for me. Uh, that is super interesting. Now, where did that come from? Was that in the same book? Uh, I will tell you. It's from a... Oh, okay. Some... It's from a paper. Um, the paper is called, and you can just Google this and find it, on the statistics of individual variations of productivity in research laboratories. Did you read this? Yeah. God damn, dude. It's good, man. Yeah. I, uh, I don't think me and papers get along. I, I like listicles. Um, can, remind yeah. me, what is the book where this Jacob Rabinow and all this stuff came from? What book is this? It's called Inventing for Fun and Profit. That's Rabinow's book. Yeah. Right. What's the book yeah. where you heard about Rabinow? Um, I've got it here. Or did it come up somewhere else? It's called uh, Creativity. The Psychology of Discovery and Invention by, you know, the guy who like popularized Flow. I'm oh, not yeah, going to yeah. do a good job pronouncing his name. Mihaly, yeah, Sikhsi, like, Mihaly. Yeah, Sikhsi or whatever. Six, six, yeah. Is it by him, you know the one. that book? It's by him, yeah. Oh, right on. Um, so talking about all this patent stuff though, I, I got it. I've been down a rabbit hole about um, patent sharks. You know mm -hmm. what I'm talking about? What a patent shark is? They're also called patent trolls. Yeah. I think I yeah. don't know what you're talking about. So I, I went through down this rabbit hole and I found some such good ones, dude. And this is an in. So first off, patent trolling is a very, very big industry. And it's really disheartening. It kind of makes you lose faith in the whole intellectual property patent like system. But um, mm. so essentially you have these little secret companies that no one knows anything about. They're completely off the grid under the radar. And all they do is either acquire or create patents that are weirdly generic and they can then go and sue bigger companies, almost always manufacturing or like automotive. They go sue or, 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 or pharma, like, you know, biotech. They they create these basically bullshit um, patents, and they only use them to sue all these companies and just mm. fish for money. So what happens is, I don't know anything about the law here, but there's this thing called a preliminary injunction. And this is how these trolls win big. Because even if their suit or the patent is totally bullshit, when you file this type of complaint, you are eligible for a pre preliminary injunction, which is where the judge says to the company, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ford Automotive, hey, we're getting this suit. While we work through it, you have to stop doing what you're doing. And that is so detrimental for like a microchip company or whatever that they will just go ahead and settle with the troll just to get it over with. Man. Right? So you want like these settlements are like 
hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Let me tell you about just, just a few of them. So first off, um, you were talking, well, we were talking about Bugatti and like something, um, Jacob Rabinow did with cars or clocks and cars. So the original patent troll, like the first one that was ever super famous and in all the news or whatever was a guy called George Selden. And he, he had a patent in the early 1900s that applied to any automobile that was powered by vaporized gasoline. So that's obviously literally every automobile that was yeah. ever made, like basically in the 20th century. So he had this, and he was not even an automotive guy. Like I, I forget exactly how he like came up with this. He was kind of an engineer and it was mm. sort of an original idea, but he got that patent and then he goes around and sues like every car company back then was like Henry Ford, Ford motor and whatever. So he sued Ford motor and won 350 K. And I went to like the, and this is like in the early 1900s, I converted that to today's dollars and it was like, uh, like over 10 million. This is like big, big money. And this was all over the newspapers and Henry Ford had a quote after it was all said and done. And he said, the automotive industry would be further advanced than it is now. If he had never been born, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah like that's a sting. <laughs> so anyways, that was like kind of the first famous patent troll. Let me tell you about this other guy and why I think this is so hilarious. So this guy is a medical doctor. He's called Dr. Bruce Safran or Saffron. And so I've re I've rebranded this guy. This is Dr. Big Dick Bruce. That's his name. <laughs> Dr. Big Dick Bruce. Let me tell you what Big Dick Bruce Saffron has done. He got, he is a doctor, right? But he got one of these sort of bullshit patents for stents. Like, you know, the thing that'll mm. like hold a blood vessel open or an artery open. I don't know what it is, but he got this patent for stents. And then over time, he sued all the three biggest stint makers and did that same kind of trolling thing. So the companies were Boston Scientific, Abbott Technologies, and Johnson & Johnson. He hmm. goes through and systematically sues each of them. Guess how many of these he wins? He wins one out of three, right? He lost Abbott Tech and he lost Johnson & Johnson, but he won Boston Scientific. And you know what he won for that? Almost $600 million. No. And this is just a doctor in New York, right? Now, let me oh, tell you man. why, which is crazy, right? So let me tell you why this guy is, is, has been renamed Big Dick Bruce Saffron. This guy's still alive. I Googled him. There's nothing out there except his LinkedIn profile. And he's got like a basic ass LinkedIn profile with like a, what looks like a blurry selfie of himself. And his LinkedIn bio tells this story. This story is like bar barely in the news anywhere because this was, you know, this was like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. But, you know, you think of a LinkedIn bio and it's like, well, I started a company and, and we scaled it to 50 million in revenue before I sold. What Big Dick Bruce is like, I sued Boston Scientific for my stint shit. This is how I did it. I had this patent. I won 560 million from these guys. I won, you know, oh, here man. and here. And I'm just like, damn, Bruce. That's and insane. honestly, like he looks like a totally normal ass guy. Um, and there's nothing on him online yeah. except his LinkedIn profile. So I guess congrats, That's a crazy story. Big Dick. Like I really have like yeah. zero, zero respect for this, but like, I don't know what really happened. Let Man, me tell you I gotta, one more. I got to figure yeah. out how to count some patents. 
Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you one more. This one was, I think, the shadiest of them all. So it's just worth telling. There's some like microchip or like advanced technology company called Rambus, R-A-M-B-U-S. So a while back, they were working on some really new technology that all their competitors were working on as well, some kind of microchip type thing. And Rambus comes along and says, guys, we need to standardize this approach, right? It's really common in technology, like, you know, HTTP, that's a standard. Everybody gets together, they agree on it, and we all use HTTP, right? So they proposed that, whatever that was for them. So that all the competitors get together, huge conferences, all this. And as a group, they agree to a certain standard for how these microchips are going to work, whatever. While this is all happening, Rambus started patenting the shit that they were using in the full group oh, standard man. that they established. And then a few years later, they sued all the other companies for using That's the Dude, that is that is so dirty. dirty. And I wish I could get under the hood because, like, if you Google it, that company still exists. Like Rambus Technology. Like, I don't know how big it is or what it does, but like, Man. it's still around. There's still hundreds of people that work for them. And I'm just like, that is dirty. Yeah, yeah. Kind of inspiring, right? Far out. No, no, I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> Um, all right. Uh, so well. let me tell you, let me tell you something, uh, um, that happened the other day. Actually, you, you mentioned earlier, like these Eureka moments, like where the light bulb goes, goes off. So I had hmm. that the other day and the light bulb. So first off, I just said something. I said something, it was unfiltered. I didn't think about it. I didn't plan. I just said it. And then after I said it, it was like a massive light bulb went off. So I finished a jujitsu class. I had just gotten my ass beat for, you know, 15 minutes solid. And what pissed me off was that I knew what was going on. I knew what I was doing wrong. I knew, oh, he's doing this move. So I need to do that. I knew it all, but I wasn't able to do any of it. Didn't get any of it done. So I got my ass dragged across the mat for 20 minutes. Coach is like, how's it going, man? Because I had my head hung a little bit and just off the cuff. I was like, well, I still suck, but now I know how much I suck. And he laughed and I was like, okay, but then the light bulb goes off because what I realized is that that excess knowledge that I have about jujitsu, which I've learned from YouTube and a couple online courses, whatever, mm. it's making me want to quit. It, it's creating this like yeah. sappy gravitational pull. Like exactly like I said, like my point is that being a beginner at something is so hard it's such a delicate, precarious phase for any pursuit. Being a beginner and knowing how shitty you are is like insurmountable. Now, thankfully for yes. me, I'm so personally committed to jujitsu that I have a, like, whatever the word is, like inertia going the other direction. Mm. So I'm good. I'm solving this problem. But then what I realized is like, I started thinking like, okay, there's something here. Like, there, there's a curse to this burden of really deep, excessive knowledge versus like having a really limited skill set in something. So I started to say like, well, what are other things in my life that I've quit? Because I, frankly, I think of myself generally as a quitter, like historically, like I start something, then I quit. Mm -hmm. I try something new, I quit. New hobby, quit. And if you asked anybody who knows me, they would be like, yeah, that sounds about right. It's like every six months I have some new big thing and then it, and then it falls by the wayside. 
and I'm better now, better and better. But I realized that this whole kind of like curse of like way too much knowledge versus where I am with a project or a skill has caused me to quit all kinds of stuff throughout my life. Examples might be like hobbies, music production, chess, uh, baking, for example, but the really big one. So when I was 30 years old, roughly 31, I walked away from a 10 year career. I had like a full decade of digital marketing career. I worked at agencies. I worked for startups. I was the director of marketing, head of marketing. I was a marketing consultant. Like I really had like a, a very meaningful 10 year digital marketing career and I torched it and walked away. And this is exactly why, like now I know hmm. why it's because I knew so much and so much knowledge about the field that I was painfully aware, aware of how big the gap was between me and like where I would want to go. Did I eventually just churn out? Um, mm -hmm. Like a, another like little anecdote here is um, you ever seen the British baking show, British Bake Off? Uh, my wife watches it. So I think I've like walked past and you've seen five seen... minutes of it. Yeah. I'm so not even there. I loved, yeah. I loved that show and I watched like tons of it. I watched every season of it, like over the course of COVID or whatever. So after like watching basically, you know, studying or just like mainlining this, this sort of quasi educational information about baking for like two years, I then put on an apron and was like, I'm going to make some cakes. I'm going to make some of these desserts complete disaster is a total joke and like walked away and have never baked since. Hmm. So who cares? Big deal. But like, I don't know what I realized is all my life, my culture, my school system, every institution has programmed me to believe that acquiring knowledge is fundamentally the best. It's, it's what you should be doing. Mm. It's equivalent to success. It's equivalent to um, intelligence. And now I'm just like really pushing back on this. And I essentially came up with this idea that um, your, your skills and your knowledge in any particular topic or pursuit or hobby or whatever, they need to increase more in tandem. Level one, yes. level one knowledge level two, level two knowledge. And I have never done that, right? It sounds very simple, but, and I think you may really relate to this in the past in my life. If I had something I wanted to learn, something I wanted to do, say, learn how to play chess. First thing I do top 10 books on Amazon, buy, 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 buy stack of books. Second thing, YouTube's channels, follow the top 10, click, 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 click. Third thing, usually like an online course or like just some other kind of online education. And I'll spend, say, 80% of my time doing that stuff, 20% of my time playing the game of chess or trying something, yeah. getting annihilated, and then quit. And the reason I'm quitting is not because I'm bad. It's because I know how bad I am relative to like the final destination. Yeah. So I I've come up with a solution so, to this whole conundrum, by the way. I Go ahead. I love this. And uh, the the other end of the spectrum, by the way, is like the Dunning-Kruger peak where you're a beginner at something and you think you're the best. So I feel like, yep. you know, it, it is helpful to know uh, where you sit. But I think any reasonably intelligent person who knows about the Dunning-Kruger curve 
can spot that. It's like you start something, you've been doing it for three months. You're not that good. You might feel good. You might tap someone out at jujitsu for the first time, but you're not that good. Um, on, I'm the same as you, by the way. I've suffered from this my entire life. For whatever reason, this was not intentional or planned. But when I took up jujitsu uh, about a year ago, I, I was like, oh, I need to dive into instructionals, like all this kind of stuff. Um, my my friend sent me like this spreadsheet of like moves that you can you know move to. And for whatever reason, I just like didn't feel the desire to go through any of it. I watched like yeah. one YouTube video or something. Because it's, it's been so that way practical. For, yeah, it's been that way right. for an entire year. And and I'll talk to people yeah. and they're like, oh, you should check out this instructional and so on and so on. I'm like, maybe I should, but like, I just, I don't want to. I just no, want to no, come to class. What you should do is get some more time on the mats. Like exactly. that's literally what you should do. You know. And the thing yeah. is like, it's so enjoyable, man, because it's like, it, it kind of relates back to that uh, loosely to like that ribbon out jail thing. It's like, this takes as long as it takes. I don't care. Like I'm in this for the process. I don't care yeah. about the belt. I don't care about the goal. I'm just like coming along and my goal is just improve. That's yeah. It. And this also helped me realize. And so, so I wrote about what we're talking about in my email newsletter yesterday and a bunch of people responded mm. to it. Um, one guy responded who was in welding school. So he's like doing a year long, learn to be a welder and like starting a new career. Um, Those guys make bank. They do make bank. If, if you play that right. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's an, if you have like, I don't know how to put it. If you don't have anything else compelling to do, you should go become a welder. You know what I mean? Like if yeah. you don't have any other particular yeah. prospects or maybe you don't have a college degree, whatever, like go be a fucking welder. It's like sure. that classic meme where like you have the, the white collar worker looking down on the blue collar, like, oh, like I went to university and like I make a hundred K yeah, and the welder's just chilling, making like 200 yeah. K a year. Like, yeah. yeah, man, I don't know about all your books and shit and knowledge and shit, but uh, I'm living pretty yeah. well. Man, that reminds me of every time I've ever, ever met a minor. You ever met minors? Like young kids? Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll tell you about <laughs> No, you fucking pedophile. No. Get your head out of the gutter. I'm talking about never people met, who I've work never, in mines. I've never met a mine. Uh, I, they're probably different over here than they are over there, but yeah. What are they over there? Like they sing songs together with their arms around well, each other all, after some rugby beers. They all, they all go they're to Australia, Australia to start with. Yeah. 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 So they all go to Perth. So I, when I was in, um, split Croatia or I was on some like Island, like Viz off the coast of Croatia. And I met a bunch of Australian miners, uh, who are working the mines in Perth. And they were mm. like, it was so crazy because I was like trying to build my career. You know, at that point I was making like 65 grand a year, but I'm living in Manhattan, you know, so it's nothing. Yeah. And these guys are like, oh yeah, we work four months a year and then we just fuck around in Croatia. And I was like, what? Yeah. You know? And they're like, yeah, we work in the mines, whatever they do. And they would make like 200 K as 25 year olds in like four months and be like, yeah, and we yeah. spend the rest of your traveling. And I was, it was a complete frame breaker. I was like, what is this? Yeah, dude, um, it's not a bad career. It is It is hard work though, like oh, it's yeah. 70 hour it, weeks. It'll, it'll take, but, take some years off your life and I think it's pretty miserable. But in I mean, the I absence of something it. to do, I think 100% stack cash, do it for five years and then like you're, you're set up. Yeah. Yeah, so in the curse, I mean, the uh, the conclusion around all this knowledge stuff, 
is um I, so this is so dumb but i god i love it i came up with the framework called the super mario theory of knowledge acquisition which abbreviates to smathka and man, when I thought of that, that's one of those things I'm like writing my email and I you thought You and your of acronyms, that, was, bro. Like, dude, it's so needs to be good. Acronym, but I do like it. <laughs> it needs to be an acronym when it's SMATHCA. Like that's such a good acronym. <laughs> so the Super Mario, what is it? Super Mario Theory of Knowledge Acquisition says, when you're on level three, world one, you only need the knowledge required to get to level four, world one. If you're mm. busy reading about how to beat the final boss in world 12, that knowledge will probably, well, A, won't be useful, but it definitely won't advance you to the next level. If anything, it makes you more likely to quit because you see how wide this chasm is. So you said earlier, like, well, you know, as a beginner, it's, it's probably helps to be somewhat aware that you're actually really bad. I don't even know if that's true, to be honest. I, I don't know if that's true. And one proof point for that is, virtually everyone I've ever known in, in entrepreneurship believes this, that naivete is like the greatest asset for an entrepreneur. Mm. You can go start a biotech company without a minute of biotech background. And when you do something successful, that's what everyone is going to say. Oh, he was able to do it because he wasn't jaded. They just stepped right sure, in. Yeah, I get you. Brought, brought new ideas, right? So it's like naivete is like, is, is a great asset for a young entrepreneur because they don't know what they don't need to know yeah. and it doesn't slow them down. Yeah, yeah. I think it's more, so, well, if, mm -hmm. I was just going to say like with, with the Dunning-Kruger thing, like some people, uh, if you think you're, you're way better than you are as a beginner, it can slow down your intensity because you're like, oh, I'm gifted. Like I'm good. Or it feeds your ego, which it did for me when I was younger. And like, I definitely pushed people away. And I, I've seen other people like that where they start something and it's like, dude, slow down a bit. But maybe it's just a necessary thing to go through. Like maybe you can't avoid well, That was interesting what know. you just said about kind of the ego as a beginner. And I th I would think that that's a slightly separate problem. That like that's a different I think it is. issue, right? And like, you know, rapid I don't have an ego, so it's not something I worry about. Yeah. Um, so the last thing I want to say about this is We've been programmed to like fundamentally just believe knowledge acquisition is the right thing to do for everything in life. Um, mm. And now in the world of the YouTubes, knowledge is cheap as hell, man. Knowledge yeah. is available, abundant. It's cheap. You can get it for free on YouTube. And that I think has made this problem worse for everyone. It's made us more likely to just become what somebody who responded to my email called an info junkie. Somebody wrote me back and was like, yeah, way too often I'm an info junkie. Well, we've been taught that being an info junkie is the way forward is the right thing to do for any topic or pursuit that you want to have. Yeah. Plus but it now, feels good. It feels so good, man. It feels so good to get information. You think you're working. You think you're being productive. It's like, oh, that's you exactly get, you it. read some that's quote. Exactly it. It's like, ah, oh, it's exactly what I needed. It's like, no, yeah. it's not. Yeah. Now to backtrack, I don't think there's anything wrong with like reading a book for pleasure, right? I read, whatever. I read a book about chaos theory and I freaking loved it. I couldn't put it down. I didn't write an article about it, whatever. But I will say now, as I think this through, 
having some kind of an application in mind for any knowledge is actually really fun and enriching and it improves retention. So the example I'm doing right now is I'm learning Pokemon from the ground up. I have always wanted to learn Pokemon. I think it's so cool how Logan Paul and those guys like have the million dollar cards and my nephew Patrick has like a hundred, 500 of these cards and I've got an almost six year old daughter and she likes stuff like this, like the artwork and whatever. So me and Goldie are learning Pokemon together from the ground up. Totally trivial, pointless knowledge, but extremely enjoyable and fun to learn. And I'm doing it for the purpose. I'm actually using the knowledge to talk about it with Goldie, to look at Pokemon Go together, mm. to we do, you know, they do artwork, we draw, Jigglypuff, et cetera. And it just makes, I, it, let me shut up here. I'm going to shut up by saying, letting some application feed knowledge consumption is a really awesome thing. And it makes the skills yes. and the knowledge level up better together. And the reverse of that, I find to be absolutely not true. Leveling up rapidly or aggressively knowledge in some skill or pursuit does not at all necessarily drive your direct improvement or application of it. So flipping it around. It doesn't. And to give you a story, like I met this guy, I'm sure you know someone like this. It's, it's very sad. I went to a conference one, once in Sydney uh, to see Gary Vaynerchuk because I was like a nice. massive Vaynerchuk fanboy back in the day. Um, nice. And I walk in and I was kind of an introvert at the time and I like forced myself. I'm going to talk to the first person who's in the building, basically. Like, yeah. I'm not going to wait around yeah. and like stand there awkwardly. So I walk in, I turn to my left and I'm like, hey, I'm Sam. And I start talking to this dude. And uh, maybe I shouldn't have done that because he we start chatting i was like what do you do he's like oh, at the moment i work for census like giving out survey forms to households and to get data from the <laughs> government i was like cool cool that sucks um, but he's like yeah but he's like you know like i'm i'm working on uh i'm gonna do a marketing agency i was like awesome like what what's the next step sort of thing and he's like well well i spent the last year like i've read all gary's books um, I've gone, I've, I've been reading these books and like uh, these courses, like doing this. I was like, oh, you spent a year doing this. He's like, yep. Yep. I think I'll spend probably another like six months, you know? And, and I was just like, I can never forget that. And like, yeah, I came across him on Facebook a few years later. And of course, like he hasn't started the agency. He's still working some sort of job. And I was just like, man, that's like the perpetual knowledge acquirer like someone who just mm -hmm. acquires knowledge and i i don't know why that is like maybe there's some sort of mental roadblock or fear or something like that maybe it's just because doing things is hard and it requires like action and, and some risk taking i don't know but it's always stuck with me that guy mm -hmm. it's like i never want to be that yeah you know what the biggest tell for this type of thing and I'll throw it out there. I think this applies virtually in every facet of life, business, school, career, relationship. I don't give a shit, anything. And anytime, anytime somebody says, when this happens, then I will blank. It's the when then. How yeah. can I, what's my acronym here? Yeah. My acronym. I said acronym. <laughs> um, all right. So this is, this is the when then model of uh, imminent failure. Um, 
WTMIF. WTMIF has it, yeah, WTMIF. Yeah, I missed the R. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, that's the red flag. Like, I would literally encourage, well, one, to think about that for myself, yourself. If anybody Mm. ever hears this, listen for this. You will literally hear it constantly all day long. Oh, when I'm this, I will then blank. Oh, when I have this, I will that. And it is always false. It is always a false obstacle. It's a complete lie to yourself. And basically, inevitably, anyone who actually believes that, the goalpost just keeps getting pushed out further and further. Yeah. It it never stops. It's like when this, then that just becomes the next when this, then that. So stop it right now, people. Yeah, that's the worst. I I do that all the time. Way too much. Yeah, you do. (laughs) So do you, man. Do I? No. Nah. Oh shit. No, you don't. Yeah. Um, I think we should head into wrapping up. Um, is there anything we missed today? No, I want to. I had a couple cool things for you. Unless there's something we missed, just jump in. But um, no. Nah, have nah. you? Heard... Okay, so obviously all anybody's talking about right now is AI stuff and Chat GPT this and AI for photos and like I get it. It's all really cool, and we're having this Cambrian explosion of apps. Frankly nothing has really blown my mind. Well, chat GPT blows my mind, but everything else is just like a, a wrapper. Everything else is a, a wrapper on top of yeah, chat GPT. Yeah. It's really yeah. all of this. So this week I have found two things. One that has completely blown my mind truly. And I look at it and I'm like, Oh, this company might as well be worth $10 billion tomorrow. The other one is like a little bit more niche, but like still such a good application. I'm going to tell you about the the like small one first. There is a little startup with like two guys called Pod Squeeze. You seen Pod Squeeze? I bet no. you haven't. In Pod Oh dude, listen to this. All right, you record your podcast just like we're doing. You take the audio file, you upload it into Pod Squeeze. It writes your show notes. It writes your timestamps. It gives you headlines for the content and it writes a bunch of blog posts and content to support the pod episode based on the audio. All right. We're trying this. Isn't, oh, we're definitely trying that with this episode. And you know, you you like go to their fucking pricing page. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I go to their pricing page. It's like free. And then it's $12 a month. You know, I'm like, God, if it's, if it is worth anything, it's worth $12 a month. 160 minutes so let of me podcast tell you, time per month. Yeah. So a friend of mine, the guy who told me about this, he runs a content agency and they specifically produce podcasts for like a whole bunch of like logistics companies. It's a pretty great niche actually. And so they were maxing out pod squeeze every single freaking day. And they had to get in touch with the founder to like beg him to let <laughs> them pay him more and use, <laughs> use for more content. So they did. You know, you've got a good um, business when that happens. That's exactly that's exactly what I said because the best commentary about product market fit I've ever heard was from um, I think Patrick Collison, the dude from Stripe and and Paul Graham, and they describe product market fit as when you're not pushing a product out anywhere, customers are ripping it out of your hand. Mm, like customers are mm. contacting you saying, "I have to have more of what you do," yeah. and so boom, there it is. Pod squeeze, good for them. They could, love that. You know, they're not going to be billion dollar company off that but like if it's three guys they could make some millions for sure 
Um, let me tell you about one more because this gave me an idea. Um, I'll give you the idea first. An online course or online, yeah, course, I don't know what, like a six week program or whatever for small and medium size B2B sales teams where you teach them how to improve their sales process using all these different AI tools. I think that could be pretty interesting. Where I got this idea is a, a, a startup called clay.com. Dude, clay.com is so sick. You take, so like among other things, I can take your LinkedIn profile, Sam Metla, drop it into clay. It will analyze your entire profile and history and write the best sales pitch emails to send to you. Hmm. Totally customized. This is sick. It's so sick. It will also give you a lead list. So you can say like, oh, my company is Rock Returns. Here's my website. We do reverse logistics. And it will just mm. algorithmically say, here's 500 leads. And here's the exact subject line email you should use for each one of them. And the email is completely <laughs> customized, tailored to that person, their LinkedIn, their past. And I saw that and I was just like, that's an absolute game changer. Yeah. Like for a lot insane. of companies, man. And it made me think like you could make if, as a cash grab, somebody could make a lot of money right now, go into B2B sales teams and saying, I will teach you over four weeks how to use five new AI, you know, chat tools. I was tools literally just things. thinking that. I was like, uh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that I was could, my idea. This plan. And yeah. you just go to them and say like, okay, use chat BT to draft first chat to draft your first uh, emails and content. Use clay.com to assemble lead lists and create customized things. Boom, boom, boom. And mm. you could, I mean, you could sell that for a lot. Just that mm. alone. Love that clay.com and pod squeeze. Yeah. And thanks and again for sponsoring today's for episode. Yeah. yeah. Fountain Life, Clay, Pod Squeeze, you know, kiss my ass, send us money. Um, yeah. And let's put this episode through Pod Squeeze and we'll report back on it next week. For sure. All right, man. Yeah, dog. Peace. Catch you.